This is part two of a series. If you haven't heard part one, you should go listen to that first. Where we left Sequoia Schmidt at the end of episode one, she was standing at the top of the stairs in her grandfather's house, screaming. She had just received a call that her dad and brother had died in an avalanche on the mountain K2 in Pakistan, and the loss was devastating. Sequoia's whole life, her big brother had been there, as the one who was good at everything and always seemed to have it all figured out. He'd been a steady mast in the storm of their tumultuous childhood. But now he was gone at 25, and so was their dad, with whom Sequoia had a more complicated relationship and a lot of unfinished business. There was that whole spam filter full of emails from him that she'd purposely ignored during the almost six years when they didn't talk. And there were other emails her dad had sent to her grandfather during that time. My dad wrote a really heartfelt email to him that essentially said, thank you for taking my daughter in. And he asked my grandfather's opinion if I will ever forgive him or heal a relationship with him. To which my grandfather replied, the answer lies in time. But sometimes you don't get that time. Sequoia was just 22 when her dad died, and the avalanche robbed her of time to figure out her adult relationship with him. As you may recall, they had reconnected and met once before he died, but now they'd never meet again, and that was almost unbearable. You would think that it's automatically the person you were closest to is going to hurt the most, but it's really those unmended relationships that just cut you so deep. Sequoia had always adored her dad, but she'd also been angry at him for some of the choices he'd made, and now she had further reason to be angry, even as she mourned him deeply. I felt like he was the one who got Denali killed, And there's still quite a few people who feel that way. K2 is an extremely dangerous mountain. Approximately one in four climbers who attempt the mountain die in the process, from falls or altitude sickness or avalanches, which are prevalent on the steep and stormy mountain. Marty and Denali died at Camp 3, and they were the only two who died that day. Other climbers on the mountain, including their own climbing partner, the third man in their party, had stayed further down or retreated back to Camp 2 because of heavy snowfalls and increased avalanche risk further up. But Marty and Denali had pushed on. When they got to Camp 3, they radioed down to base camp and they said, it's really, really cold. There is a lot of snow here. We're going to wait it out to the morning and see what the snow conditions look like. We'll radio you in the morning. And... That was the last time they were ever heard from. The next day, a Sherpa climbed up to Camp 3 to see what might have happened to them. He made a very difficult climb up to Camp 3, and there was avalanche debris. There were no signs of remains. There was half of a tent there. So the assumption is that an avalanche had swept my dad and brother off the edge I mean, still to this day, I relive how horrifying that must be. Sequoia was left with no bodies to bury, no eyewitness account of her dad and brother's final moments, no chance to yell at her dad for the hurt he'd caused her, 
and no time to mend things with him either. The grief was overwhelming, and for months she felt like she was merely existing until she sought refuge in a new relationship. He worked at, you know, Mercedes, and I was taken care of in a way I'd never been taken care of before. The nice house, the brand new bends, the steak every Friday night, a very white picket fence kind of life. Like, we literally had a white picket fence at the house. The other place Sequoia found solace was through work. She'd already been running her own publishing company for five years, and now she decided to start a foundation in her brother's memory, the Denali Foundation, which would support young artists like himself, as well as arts programs in public schools in the U.S. and in refugee camps around the world. Sequoia had never started a foundation or run a nonprofit before, but that didn't stop her. She also decided to organize a major exhibit of the art her brother had left behind in San Francisco, where he'd graduated from art school at the top of his class just a few weeks before he died. And two years after he died, following many months of hard work, the day of the opening of Denali's big art show finally rolled around. I was at the restaurant supply store picking up some trays for the caterers, and while I was waiting for my Uber, I was scrolling through my phone. And I'd been following all of the teams who were on K2 that year. My curiosity for that world had kind of overcome me a little bit, and I was so interested in who was climbing and what they were doing. And there was this South African climber who was there, and one video that he put out on Facebook was kind of a promotion for the trip he was doing on K2. And I click on it, and 22 seconds into the video, he says, but if you're not careful, the mountain will kill you. And then it flashes with an image of a human head on a glacier. And all I could think was, oh my God, that's my brother's head that's on a video on Facebook. So I, I was obviously shocked and I was crying a lot. But I knew I had to pull my shit together because I had 500 people showing up to a huge gallery opening for this exhibit. We had art critics coming and it was a big deal. It was a big event. So I got up and dusted myself off and went to the gallery opening and was smiling and greeting people. And in the back of my mind, all I could think was that head is just sitting out there on the glacier for people to film and put on Facebook. Obviously, because it was swept down from a mountain, it had uh, incurred quite a bit of damage, but the form was still there. I replayed that kit probably a hundred times, and I paused it, and I screenshotted it, and I zoomed in on it, and I was trying to determine, it. are there any identifying factors that it is for sure my brother, or is this just a feeling that I have? And the only way was to go find out for myself. And by the end of the night, I'd made a decision that I was going to go to Pakistan. And the next day, I was issued an emergency visa. And within a week, I was on a plane by myself to Islamabad.
pretty much every single person in my life told me not to do it. You're going to get raped, you're going to get murdered, you're going to get kidnapped by Taliban. Anything you can think of, they said it. And I was out of shape, and I was smoking so much. I mean, I really was in no mental or physical condition to take a 17-day solo trek through the Karakoram Range. Sequoia didn't intend to summit K2. As we know, the best climbers in the world struggle to do that even after years of training. Her plan was to make it to advanced base camp, which is where the head had been spotted. But even that is quite a challenge. K2's advanced base camp sits at almost 17,000 feet, which is 2,500 feet higher than Mount Whitney, the tallest mountain in the contiguous United States. And the conditions on K2 are brutal, with extreme sun and heat to start, and extreme cold and snow as you move higher up. But Sequoia was a woman on a mission. The only thing I was thinking about was getting to K2. Before she left, Sequoia had managed to talk to some other climbers who'd recently been on K2, and they'd confirmed that there was indeed a head sitting on a glacier by Advanced Base Camp, along with several other body parts. But they also reminded her that many climbers had died on K2 over the decades, and bodies stay preserved for years in the permafrost, making the mountain a sort of tomb to climbers whose bodies occasionally get swept down in an avalanche and reappear years later. In other words, the remains could be anyone's. But if it was her brother or her dad, she did not want them sitting out there in the open to be used for shock value in people's promotional videos. I was just furious because I thought it was so disrespectful. My dad always taught me you respect the mountain and you respect the climbers who came before you. Sequoia couldn't get there fast enough, and after days of traveling from Islamabad to the Karakoram mountain range, she was finally ready to start the 11-day trek to base camp. I remember putting on my pack and starting the trail out of Ascole and just moving so fast. And Ghul, who was my Pakistani guide, I remember him turning around and saying, stop moving so fast. You're going to kill yourself if you try to go into altitude this fast. You need to slow down and you need to take a breath. Unlike her dad and brother, who practiced the purest form of alpine climbing, Sequoia had a local guide and porters to help her, as do most people who attempt to climb mountains. But even so, it was brutal. My feet were just covered in blisters. My skin was really burnt because the sun there is really intense. I was dehydrated. I'm like, this is insanely hard. But Sequoia was driven forward by a force she barely understood herself at the time. I was so dead focused on getting to base camp and finding these remains, and driven a lot by rage. I was very angry at the person who posted the video, at the adventure community in general, and very angry still at my father. I was very angry at him. And I don't think I realized how angry I was in the beginning of that trip. I didn't even look at the mountains that I was going into. Sequoia wasn't there to enjoy the process or commune with nature. She was there to outpace her grief and bury ahead. The steep slopes and rapid rivers were mere obstacles in her path at first. But as the trek wore on, things began to shift a bit, thanks in part to a gift she'd received after her brother's death. 
Several months after the tragedy, some blue buckets had arrived on our doorstep, containing the final belongings Denali had left behind at base camp before he died, including the journal he'd kept as he'd made his way from Islamabad to the Karakoram Range to K2 Base Camp, following the exact same roads and routes that Sequoia was now on. It even included some audio journaling he'd done sitting by the very rivers that Sequoia was now crossing, as he recorded sections of his travel log on tape. We walk the sweaty streets of Islamabad. We pull out of the city, leaving its smog-filled hustle in our exhaust cloud as we speed past pastures and gas stations into the mountains along a famous Karakoram Highway. There is something liberating about order, the order of life, the unabashed movement of human bodies and the things they have built. Twist and bend, the bus winds its way past village and bridge above the Indus River, where life hangs on the edge. After two days' drive, we reach the wasted-out section of road 30 kilometers before Skardu. Pigment and rock crash and muddy water torrents down the mountainside and onto the swift-flowing Indus. It is time to leave. Leave he did, and he never came back. But as Sequoia got deeper and deeper into the journey, Denali's words and thoughts also seeped deeper and deeper into her mind. In his journal, he was talking about the wildflowers that grew on the trek. It would be an entire, like, glacier covered in rock, and then there'll be this random, beautiful little purple flower. And prior to that trip to Pakistan, I would have never even noticed a flower on the side of a trek. I wouldn't have. You know, when you're in that cloud of anger, you think the world kind of rotates around you a little bit. But because of that journey I got to take with him through his writing, I slowly became more aware of my surroundings, looking up at these beautiful cathedrals of mountains. I felt like I understood his way of looking at the world a little bit more in a way that I hadn't when he was alive. I think that was like the very beginning of just falling in love with mountains in general and realizing how small and minute I am. The first time I saw K2 was actually by moonlight. K2 is one of those rare mountains where you have to track for like seven days before you can even see it. By the time we got there, it was completely covered in clouds and we couldn't see it, which was really disappointing. And I went to sleep and I woke up to pee in the middle of the night and all the clouds had cleared and there was moonlight. It's covered in snow and ice, so it was kind of glistening. I sat on a rock for a good hour or two in the middle of the night and... I wasn't angry like I thought I would be. I just thought it was one of the most beautiful mountains I've ever seen in my life. By the time I got to Camp Cuburoso, I remember sitting on a rock and staring at the stars for like an hour or two and thinking that I felt a little bit more 
okay with the fact that my brother's cosmic energy that was the physical form of my brother is now a cosmic energy in the universe. Finally, after 10 days of trekking, Sequoia and her team were on the ascent to base camp when Sequoia started getting sick from the altitude. This is not uncommon, and it can be quite dangerous. Gould turned to me and he said, are you okay? You know, you're, you're kind of walking a little funny and you look a little bit white. Why don't you sit down? And I kept telling him, no, I'm okay. I can continue. I can continue. But my head was pounding. And I sat on a rock and he said, okay, I don't like how you look right now. I need to go try to find the oxygen for you. But Habib and Mosa, the porters, were already way ahead. They were about an hour or two ahead of us. So he said, you stay here. And he handed me a piece of paper with some writing on it. It was the instructions for my water purifying system. And he said, you read this and you do not go to sleep. (laughs) And he ran off ahead on the glacier to try to find the porters. And I just remember looking at the piece of paper and reading like the first three or four sentences and then slowly drifting off. And all I wanted to do was sleep. I just needed to sleep. And my mind just slowly drifted off as I was reading that. And I was trying to stay awake. I'd like slap myself a couple times, but I couldn't. And I just felt myself drifting off to sleep. I drifted so much that I could see my body below me. It felt like I was like hovering above my body. And it was such a surreal moment. And I just heard my brother's voice at that time. He said, wake up, Sequoia, wake up. And then I heard a really loud call. And I opened my eyes and I was looking directly into the eyes of a bird. And then it flew off. And I was fine. I felt okay. And it felt like that total experience was about 10 minutes. But then Ghoul came running back down the glacier. And he said, it's been two and a half hours since I left. I thought you were going to be dead when I got back. Sequoia and her team ended up pausing for the night. But the next day, they finally made it to base camp. I went up to the memorial site to see my dad and brother's plaques. It's like a whole area that has plaques dedicated to the climbers who died on the mountain. And the memorial is really up high. You have to like climb this rock face to get to the memorial. And I was up there just kind of sitting in front of my dad and brother's plaque and reminiscing and thinking of memories. And then I heard Ghoul shout up at me, He's like, Seki, Seki, which is what he called me because he couldn't pronounce Sequoia. Ghoul had already found their human remains, which were indeed sitting out in the wide open on a glacier, just like Sequoia had seen on the video. And she began to make her way down from the memorial to go see for herself. But by this point, she already more or less knew that it wasn't going to be her brother or dad. Over 10 days in Pakistan, speaking with climbers and locals in the area and seeing the mountain for herself, 
She'd come to realize that her brother and dad had most likely been swept down on the other side of the mountain, the Chinese side. A part of me was kind of relieved about that, that they weren't at the bottom of the mountain so everyone could see them. It's beautiful, tragic, beautiful, and poetic at the same time to know that they were buried deep in the mountain and get to sleep in the mountain forever. And it was so much more of a metaphorical journey of my relationship with them than just a physical one of burying remains. And although I was concentrating on the catalyst, the journey itself was the important thing that played a major part in my life. Before she left for the trip, Sequoia had contacted the families of other climbers who'd perished on K2 in recent years, and she'd sought their permission to collect DNA samples of the remains and bury them you know, should it turn out to be their loved one. Everyone she spoke to had given their blessing, but now Sequoia faced the heavy task of actually handling the remains and collecting samples. I just remember looking at this human foot. You know, to handle it, I had to take it out of a boot and take the sock off and take a skin sample. And I just remember feeling the skin and looking at the hair on the leg and just being like, this is, it's, it's, it feels so real. It's so human. And because it was preserved in a mountain, it just looked like my own leg and my own foot. It ended up haunting me quite a bit. You know, to this day, I'll like do a climb and I'll turn around and I'll see something and I'll think it's like a human head. performed some sampling for DNA from each of the remains and then wrapped them in white burial cloth and buried them in the memorial. By the time she left Pakistan, Sequoia felt changed on every level. It was so funny when you look at pictures of me, like right when I land in Pakistan and then right when I'm leaving. And it's just like a completely different person, not just physically. Obviously, there's a huge drastic change physically. I think I lost like 15 pounds on that trip. And it was so funny when I got back to Houston, all my socialite friends were like, oh my God, girl, you look great. What were you doing? I'm like, yeah, (laughs) go to Pakistan, you'll find out. That also just shed a couple of layers of heavy emotional shit. And when I returned from Pakistan, I knew that I had a different path in life. The man I was with at the time was so incredible and supportive and just an absolute gem for that particular time in my life. But I knew that I was about to embark on a completely different chapter. And in order to do that, I needed to leave him and to leave Texas as well. And that's always hard to do, especially when you've craved stability your entire life. And then you have this wonderful setup of this great house and this incredible man. But I wasn't ready for that just yet in my life. 
So yeah, I packed up my stuff and I moved to LA of all places, instability central. <laughs> um, Sequoia made some radical changes in her lifestyle and decided she wanted to learn mountaineering for herself. And over the next several years, she spent a great deal of time trying to learn her father's craft and climbing different mountains. Two years after Pakistan, she was ready to attempt to summit the volcano Cotopaxi in Ecuador, which had been one of her father's favorites. She saw it as a rite of passage in her climbing education, the first peak that might allow her to truly call herself a climber. And it was hard won. I remember reaching the summit of Cotopaxi. I was a little bit of altitude sickness, so I think I like felt like I was coming into my own as a climber. And then I think I threw up and started going down. <laughs> Sequoia never intended to make mountaineering her livelihood the way her father had by being a guide on other people's expeditions and giving talks. She liked being a publisher. She just wanted to be able to do both. So she made a few changes. I didn't want my employees, like, looking at my Facebook page and being like, oh, she's in France eating cheese and we're stuck in the office. So I kind of made it a company rule of work wherever you want, whatever times you want, just get the work done. And that's allowed me to be sitting at Everest Base Camp doing emails and drinking coffee on the boat dock in Istanbul, eating Turkish delights and, like, chatting with a client on WhatsApp. And it's allowed me to live this pretty spectacular life for the last five years. Climbing mountains led to a fascination with other extreme sports, like skydiving and later base jumping, which simply means that you're jumping off a fixed object like a bridge or antenna or building or cliff with a parachute or a wingsuit on. And that's what Sequoia does now on a daily basis from the Perrin Bridge. Earlier this year, she bought a house in Twin Falls, Idaho, expressly to be close to that bridge, which is the only legal, permit-free, year-round base jumping site in the U.S. But why leap off a bridge on a daily basis, you might ask? And I did. In base, you're forced to know your shit, because if you don't know your shit, then you're dead. To many, that might sound more like a reason not to do it. So I probed a bit further as to the benefits Sequoia feels she gets from base jumping on a daily basis. And her explanation sounded surprisingly similar to the reasons I take a yoga class every day. I've had to be in really intense meetings with my clients and with my company, and it's really nice to go out there and get a nice jump in and feel a little bit free for a moment and clear my mind a bit, and then go back and sit down on the laptop and have a clear plan of how I'm going to move forward. And there are definitely other ways to access that. You know, I did a a silent meditation retreat in Thailand for seven days. I've done a couple of them. And I was able to access those points of heightened awareness through meditation. Of course, base jumping is quite a bit more dangerous than meditation, though it's hard to get an accurate sense of just how dangerous... Some stats show some rather staggering fatality rates, but people in the community point out that most jumps happen covertly, and hence the actual number of jumps is much higher and the fatality rate, therefore, lower. You look at cities like London, which has got a pretty heavy base scene. People are out jumping the buildings quite often, and 
you would never know. You would never know that people are climbing up to the top of the building and jumping off at night. You would never know that. She's correct. I did not know that. And there's something poetic and beautiful about the idea to me. Still, I couldn't help wondering why Sequoia felt so drawn to base jumping and other extreme sports. Could it be survivor's guilt or grief or unprocessed anger that drove her to risk her life this way? But when I asked, she pushed back against the idea. I think that that intensity was always in me, no matter what, and allowed me to do things like start a company at 16 and run a successful business. And like I knew I never wanted to work for anybody else. I knew I never wanted to conform to what quote-unquote societal norms were, which is the same intensity that led me to stuff like bass. I mean, fuck. I could have been an extreme alcoholic. So I would choose a life where I'm reminding myself of how lucky I am to be alive every day. You might think that losing her brother to extreme sports at a young age would deter Sequoia from similar pursuits, but for her it's the other way around. My brother was, you know, he was 25 years old when he died. Life can just be stripped away so quickly and easily. Why not experience all of it? Everything that a human being can possibly experience. I love life. I have a pretty frickin' incredible life. She does. I gotta admit, it looks pretty good. Last year, she found love. He's a fellow base jumper. I was there doing some training on balloon jumps, which can only be jumped at, like, five o'clock in the morning out in the desert. And a good friend of mine who does rigging, who like fixes stuff on my parachute, invited me over for a barbecue. So we were sitting there barbecuing and John came out from around the Sprinter van. Like he had the same van as me, except mine's gold. And he was topless, a little bit of a interesting bad boy demeanor. And came and sat down and we had a chat for a little bit. And then I took off because I had a, you know, 5 a.m. balloon jump. After that, John found Sequoia on Facebook and they connected and decided to go base jumping together in Idaho. We spent seven days jumping together and we got along very well. And after seven days, I was leaving to Italy and I didn't really want to be apart from him. So I invited him to join me in Italy for a month. I had a business meeting in Geneva that I flew to, and then I flew back to Italy where he picked me up, and we were driving up the coast of Lago di Garde up to an area called Brento, where a lot of base jumpers do their big wall training. And as we were driving along the lake, we just pulled over to the side of the lake and had a little picnic, and he proposed right on the lake. It was beautiful. That was nine months ago now, and yeah, we have a house together, bought a little farm in Idaho, and just navigating life with each other and really, really enjoying it. Sequoia and John had been together for just two weeks when they got engaged, so they didn't exactly take things slow. But hey, that wouldn't be the Schmidt way, would it? And perhaps you can shave a few years off of your trust-building timetable when you've done things like this together. There's a jump that John and I did in Italy together, and it's called a Mr. Bill. And it's where the back of his parachute is attached to the cliff, and I'm holding on to him. I'm just hugging him. And he walks off the cliff, and we fall, and it extracts his parachute, and I'm just hanging on him. 
I don't have any attachment to him whatsoever. I'm just hugging him and holding on to him and we're flying out over the cliff. And then when I'm ready, I let go of him and fall off of him and flip a couple times and then pull my parachute. John and Sequoia weren't planning to settle down just because they were getting married. They bought the house in Idaho to have as a base, and Sequoia kept her apartment in L.A. as well. But before the pandemic, they were planning to continue their globe-trotting ways. When I first met John last year, he was like, you know what we should do when we get married? We should just paint a white picket fence on the side of the van. But of course, COVID-19 threw a wrench in their travel plans, and they've been making the best of the quarantine jumping off the Perrin Bridge near their house each day and otherwise living a fairly domestic life. I was painting my white picket fence the other day. John went out and bought a a little fence and put it across the side of our farm, and he's like, Honey, look, we have a white picket fence. (laughs) So there are ways to live in a white picket fence and still be wild. Thank you. We have four chickens, two dogs, and a white picket fence in a big old house. In addition to getting engaged and buying a house, Sequoia traveled to 21 countries last year and jumped out of more than 100 planes. She also had a record year with her publishing company and with the Denali Foundation, which exceeded its fundraising goals and expanded its outreach to a series of new schools and international programs. Last October, they held their annual gala at the Yale Club in New York, where the painter Graydon Parrish made a portrait of actor Paul Giamatti for the occasion, and it was auctioned off for $120,000 to benefit the foundation. Sequoia is just 29 years old, and she may be the most poised 29-year-old I've ever met. She's obviously always been driven, But things really kicked into gear and fell into place when she started practicing extreme sports, she says. If you look at our numbers in 2015 versus 2020, we've had astronomical growth as a small business. And I attribute a portion of that growth to my own personal development, learning to trust myself, learning to trust my decisions. Not that she doesn't still get scared before a jump. I'll make really good excuses for myself. I'll be like, oh, the wind's a little bit too high right now. Or I don't know how I feel about this particular packed rig. Maybe I should redo it. It's just our natural human instinct to be like, you're going to die doing this. Don't do it. So is it about conquering that fear? Not exactly, says Sequoia. I like to call it becoming intimate with my fear, like understanding my fear, understanding my emotions. I don't see it as conquering fear in any way. It's what can I learn from my fear. This reminded me of something Sequoia had told me about her dad. My dad had a really interesting spiritual philosophy around mountaineering. Like he didn't believe in conquering the mountain. So when he was on the summit, he would never step on the very, very top of the summit because he didn't believe that climbing was about conquering the mountain. He believed it was about being one with the mountain. And so he technically never summited any mountain. (laughs) Sequoia never got to say goodbye to her dad. She didn't even get to go to his big memorial in New Zealand. Marty had married the woman Sequoia had punched as a teenager, and she wasn't invited to the memorial, 
which was obviously very painful and still stings. The wife also sold off all of Marty's climbing gear piece by piece. He wrote MSIG on everything he ever had, which means Marty Schmidt International Guiding. So in black marker on everything he ever had, there was MSIG. And I remember maybe four years ago, I was doing the Northwest Ridge of Aspiring, which is a mountain in New Zealand. It's the second highest in New Zealand, a beautiful climb. And I was up there with a climbing partner. We got there and we put our stuff in the lodge. And right where my little bunk in the lodge was, there was a pair of shoes hanging that said MSIG on them and a climbing axe that said MSIG. And I was like, wait, whose stuff is this? Like, that was my dad's stuff. Whose stuff is this? And a guy in the lodge said, oh, yeah, that's mine. I said, where did you get it? And he said, oh, I got it on Gear Trader. And that happened to me four more times after that. And at first I was really mad about it because I felt like that was a piece of my dad that was just getting sold off. And then I actually, by the third time it happened in Argentina on a mountain called Aconcagua, a guy had a sleeping bag with MSIG on it. And I just happened to be walking past the tent and saw it. And I kind of just smiled because I was just like, you know what, actually that's kind of cool. Because it's like, every time I venture into the mountains, I never know if I'm going to see a piece of my dad there. So it's been a painful thing to kind of go through, not just the physical stuff, but the emotional stuff that he leaves behind as well. But over the last almost seven years, and especially in the last five since going to Pakistan, it's been a really powerful healing journey. The hardest thing for Sequoia has been to make peace with her brother's death. He was so young and had a whole other path mapped out for himself. Following K2, he had um, an apprenticeship set up in Berlin, and he was set up to be in an apartment and live in Berlin with his girlfriend. Marty died doing the only thing he ever wanted to do, Sequoia says, but not so with Denali. Although he loved it, that wasn't his chosen profession which is something my dad tried to understand, but I think he struggled to understand that because Denali was so gifted in the world of mountaineering. You know, I I was really angry at dad when, he, when they both first died because I felt like it wasn't Denali's decision. But as Sequoia started making similar decisions for herself, taking similar risks and finding them not only worthwhile, but life-changing in the best way, she was better able to accept Denali's death. She also changed her view on death itself, which used to be more rooted in a classic Christian understanding. Oh, they're in heaven and I'll go see them. I think I believed that when Dan Denali died just because I needed to. And I needed to have that feeling that I would see them again. But over the years, and especially living the life that I do right now and the way that I do it, I think they became a part of the cosmic energy that surrounds us. And so, yeah, they're around me all the time. I don't believe that Dad and Denali are standing over my shoulder every time I make a summit, but I definitely believe that their energy surrounds me. Denali was a very spiritual person himself. In high school, he wrote a long essay based on a study he did on himself to see how practicing Zen meditation daily would affect his ability to pull off a 360 backflip on skis, which of course he accomplished by the end of it. 
In it, he also talks about continuing to learn the spiritual traditions of indigenous tribes with his mother, whom he always stayed close to. She very much encouraged his talents as an artist and supported him through art school. After Denali's death, Sequoia reconnected with her mom, and they've been rebuilding their relationship over the last seven years. But, says Sequoia, she's also been rebuilding her relationship with her dad over that same period, even though he's been dead the whole time. In 2013, right when they died, if you asked me, what was your relationship like with your dad? I would have probably said something like, my relationship with my dad was really bad. He really hurt me. He never knew how to apologize. He was very selfish. But if you ask me now how my relationship is currently with my dad, I feel so much more connected with who he was, with the life he led, uh, with the choices he made. And a huge part of that was my own journey into the mountains, into a certain lifestyle that my father lived, and just like mind expansion in general. And if it wasn't for him as a father, and especially if it wasn't for him passing away, I definitely wouldn't have lived life in the last five, six years the way I have. And the greatest tragedy that I've ever gone through in my life was the best thing that happened to me. To some that could sound a little cold, perhaps, that the death of her dad and brother was the best thing that ever happened to Sequoia. But I appreciate the honesty and the sentiment, because I think it represents our only real shot at forgiveness. Forgiveness, I've recently come to think, is not about what they did then. It's about how we live now. It's not about the past. It's about the present and our ability to transform our pain into something more productive. Forgiveness is not something we can give to other people the way we often think. It's a state we can cultivate in ourselves by healing the wounds they inflicted on us. Forgiveness is not a mountain we summit once and for all, or perhaps ever. It's one we're always climbing. It's a state we aspire to, I think. And the only real measure of how well we're doing there is how well we're doing in life. How are we living with our wounds at this moment in time? Are they bringing out the worst in us or the best in us? Because they have the power to do both. But regardless, our wounds made us who we are and brought us where we are. And if we can honestly say that we wouldn't want it any other way, that we like who we are and where we are, isn't that the truest form of forgiveness? Perhaps the only true form? I think so. So good for you, Sequoia, that you like your life so much. When I was your age, I barely knew what I wanted to do when I grew up. You have so much figured out already, and you've been so driven to better yourself and your life and to not take anything lying down. You never seem to roll over and play the victim. You dust yourself off and go get what you want. And it's impressive. You've figured out things that I only began to understand yesterday, and I'm almost 20 years older than you. Just be careful out there, okay? This is where Sequoia's story ended when I shared it on Patreon four months ago. 
Since then, there have been some new developments in her and John's lives, which will someday make for another chapter of this story. And I look forward to sharing that with you when the time is right. In the meantime, if you'd like to hear more of my work, new and old, and join an exceptionally wonderful community where we hang out and support each other through this mess called life, you too can join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash strangerspodcast. There are about 100 episodes on Patreon, and there are four levels starting at $1. So check it out at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash strangerspodcast. Sequoia Schmidt is the author of two books. One is called Journey of Heart, A Sojourn to K2, and the other is Changing Gears, Ups and Downs on the New Zealand Road, about a solo bike trip she took around her home country of New Zealand. She's currently working on her third book, Dream of Flight, which is a soon-to-be-released odyssey through the emotional and physical world of human flight. She also runs the Denali Foundation and her publishing company, D'Angelo Publications. You can find her at sequoiaschmidt.com. If you have a story to tell or something to say, call 844-NO-STRANGER. That's 844-667-8726. Or send a voice memo or a regular old email to me at strangersradio at gmail.com. If you sent one while I was on hiatus, it wouldn't hurt to send it again. Thanks, as always, to Paul Drew Smith for making the music and mixing this episode, and to my story advisor, Christina Thyssen, whom you can find at com. Thanks for listening and for waiting so patiently while I was away. Stay safe.